As we come today to Genesis chapter 24, the sun is about to set on Abraham's life. The climax of his biography is found in chapter 22. You might want to note that there, where Abraham passes the ultimate test of faith on Mount Moriah. He proves there the genuineness of his faith, does he not? By his willingness to give to God the life of the very Son through whom God promised to raise up a great nation. Abraham's biography, though, from that place, if you note it there, chapter 22, right about verse 19, begins to wind to a close. What we find between the mountaintop experience on Moriah, chapter 22, and Abraham's death, chapter 25, are matters pertaining directly to the outworking of the two predominant promises of God around which Abraham's life revolved. You remember those promises, particularly if you've been with us through this series, They are the promises, first of all, of the land of Canaan. Secondly, a promise of a great offspring through Isaac. Now last week, if you look at chapter 22 and verse 20, we noted there last week an emphasis upon what? There the emphasis was, as Abraham's life winds down, a brief passage that has as its controlling interest the promise of offspring of Abraham. The key point there, I think, is the birth of Rebekah, Abraham's brother Nahor's granddaughter, and Rebekah will play heavily into the chapter that we look at this morning. What was the emphasis of chapter 23? As we noted last week, chapter 23, this narrative of Sarah's death has as its controlling interest, which of the two promises? Has as its controlling interest the promise of the land. In this account, Abraham makes the first purchase of a field in Canaan. For the first time, an Israelite, Abraham, the patriarch, owns land in this land of promise. Chapter 23, we read at verse 17, though it is the account of Sarah's death, we find this specific emphasis, verse 17. So Ephron's field of Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. We hear this repetitive emphasis on the land. And then verse 20, again, so the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Today, in general terms, we consider again a matter pertaining to Abraham's promised offspring, chapter 24. More specifically, chapter 24 will deal with the marriage of Isaac. This is obviously a critical element in the saga of Abraham's life. Isaac has been born to Abraham and to Sarah, just as God promised, Now Isaac must be married, obviously, for God's promise of a great offspring to be actually fulfilled. Now in the grand scheme of things, one marriage may not seem all that important. But I would like you to note how lengthy this account is. Just page through if you need to. For those that have the big print like me, I've got to turn a couple times to get through this passage. It's a lengthy passage. We encounter, in fact, one of the longest narratives of the Bible, and I believe its sheer length indicates to some degree its importance. 
As we strive to understand that importance, we note that this narrative is constructed so as to draw our attention to the unique intervention of God in bringing Isaac and Rebekah together. I'd like to tip you off a little bit to that end. Watch as we go through the way that God is involved in all of these seemingly mundane events. It's not mundane for Rebekah, it's not mundane for Isaac, I acknowledge. Certainly for Abraham's servant, these are exciting events. But the scriptures are careful to detail the intervention of God through this narrative. And it is, as I mentioned, a lengthy narrative. We'll have to plow through fairly quickly. But in chapter 22, God providentially provides a ram to take Isaac's place on Mount Moriah. In chapter 24, God will provide a wife for Isaac. And so we learn again, see again, witness again, that God provides Jehovah Jireh, Yirayah, Jehovah provides. Well, for Abraham's part, life was winding down and he closed out his days in a sense of the Lord's unique blessing upon him. We have something of this umbrella statement or this introductory statement, verse 1 of chapter 24. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years and the Lord had blessed him in every way. His life had not been easy, but it had been blessed. Though he would die a Bedouin, a wandering sojourner, God had truly enriched Abraham, as it says here, in every way. He had given him wealth in flocks and a place of standing among the people in the land. He had opened the womb of Sarah and given them Isaac. He had permitted Abraham to breathe the rarefied air of deep faith in God on Moriah against the Eastern Alliance as he recovered Lot and his possessions and in the intercession for Sodom on the, day, on the day that he actually hosted the Lord at his tent. Separated from his homeland and family, Abraham lived in isolation as a sojourner, but he lived in fellowship with God. He lived in fellowship with a God who loved him and a God who chose him. And there simply is no better way to live. He lived as the recipient of divine grace. Under that heading, the narrative now reveals yet another blessing in Abraham's life, and that account of Isaac's marriage breaks into four scenes, two in Canaan and two in Mesopotamia. Scene number one is Canaan. Abraham arranges for Isaac's marriage, beginning at verse 2. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Abraham's servant is asked to symbolically place his hand under the physical source of Abraham's offspring. Such a ritual would obviously be be very distasteful to us in our culture, but it served in that culture to demonstrate that this oath has taken in interest, is taken in the interest of Abraham's offspring. Specifically, Abraham states at verse 3, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. We're in the context here, obviously, of a day of arranged marriages. There might be some say that the parties involved in the marriage would have, but generally that was, that was a secondary consideration. This was a day when parents would contract for the marriage of their children. But this is, even in that day, an unusual request for Abraham's Aramean family is a long ways from Canaan. 
And so the servant is naturally a bit confused. Normally, a a wife would be brought to dwell in her husband's family, but under these circumstances, there's a problem. Let me just show you that here in the overhead. We'll just look at it just briefly, but just to get a picture of the journey, Abraham is over here, Isaac living here in the Negev, in that southern area of the Promised Land, and he is suggesting Abraham, in fact, asking his servant to swear that he will go all the way up around the Fertile Crescent. Remember, this is all desert here. Very difficult to travel through here. He will go all the way up around and down into northern Mesopotamia, somewhere in this region, to find a wife for Isaac. That would be by camel, the transportation necessary in that situation, about a four-week journey, one way. So four weeks to come to this location and four weeks to go all the way back. So if you can keep that picture in your mind, this is the journey that the servant will take four weeks in either direction. Thank you. So with that in mind, the servant obviously has a question. Verse 5, the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? How does Abraham respond? Note it carefully. Verse 6, make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. Absolutely not. Why? I want you to notice carefully what is the driving reason that Abraham makes this statement. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine, only do not take my son back there. His point is that God promised me an offspring and a land. Isaac is my offspring, and Isaac must live in this land. Now, we have to think a little bit for a moment here, carefully about what he says, how he responds to this servant's question. He does not say, if you can't find any takers, then you're released from your oath. That might be what we would think. If you go all of that distance and you can't find a woman to come back with me, fine, I understand. Do the best that you can and bring somebody back. That is not what he says. Notice what he says there, verses 7 and 8, verse 7 in particular. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife or my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released. The woman. What woman? The woman to whom God's angel will lead you. Now, if if that isn't faith, he's going to lead you, God is going to lead you to a woman. Four weeks journey away. If that particular woman does not come back with you, then she doesn't come back with you. We notice here, certainly, however, that Abraham does not deny the free will of man, does he? God will lead you to the woman if she refuses to come. If she does not decide to come with you, you'll be released from your oath and God will bring her another way. So Abraham implicitly trusts God's timing 
He also trusts that God will provide. He learned on Mount Moriah that God intervenes and provides for His people, and he's counting on it now in the marriage of Isaac. And so he insists that Isaac's wife not come from the Canaanites. He will not seek a wife for his son from among the people that God has cursed. Genesis 9, 24-26, the curse on Canaan. And he will not, secondly, seek a wife for his son among the people prophesied to disinherit the land. Genesis chapter 15, verses 14-21. to 21. Do not find a wife from among the Canaanites and do not take my son away from here. Why? Not because Abraham can't cut ties with his son Isaac, but because God has promised this land. And so, verse 9, we read, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this, this matter. So the servant is commissioned. He understands the commission. He knows the implications. He knows what to do if there is success, obviously. He knows what to do as well if there is failure. And so the scene changes now from Canaan to Mesopotamia. We are at a well in Mesopotamia as we come to verse 10, and Rebekah is discovered at this well. Verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left taking with him all kinds of good things from his master, he set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. We don't know if that's a town named Nahor or Nahor's town. doesn't really make a lot of difference here. He, he goes to where the family of Nahor lives. Now, we're tipped off to this back in chapter 22 of who Nahor is and the children that he has. But he had, verse 11, then the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. So we're here in central Mesopotamia now at a well. And we notice that the Lord's angel does not lead Abraham's servant by the nose to the woman. There aren't lights going off over her head saying, here's the one, like eat it bobs or something flashing above her head. This is the woman. This, that is not how the angel leads him. But he does lead him to this place and watches the servant is seeking to discover if this is in fact the one. Verse 12, then he prayed, O Lord God of my father Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside the spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. He has ten camels. That's no small amount. and It would be a massive task to water them. And let me say, too, I don't think this is necessarily a commendable way for us to seek the Lord's will today. I mean, don't anybody take this, go sit in a restaurant and say, may the next woman that goes and gets Diet Coke be the one for me. That would be a foolish application of this passage of Scripture. But let's remember something here. This man does not have revelation. He does not have written Scripture to aid him and to guide him. He does not have the same ministry of the Holy Spirit that you and I have. And so we have to give some allowances here. What he is doing that is commendable is he's praying. Again, he doesn't expect for the Spirit of God, the angel of God, to lead him and to cause this woman to trip in front of him somehow and to present herself or some kind of miraculous situation to develop. He prays. He seeks to discern the will of God. 
As a matter of fact, if you look at it, I don't know that this prayer is even necessary. Because it's, it's really not a prayer, and obviously no prayer is, in the end, a prayer that wakes God up. And God says, well, now that's a great idea. I think I'll do that. It never crossed my mind. That is obviously not what this prayer is doing. What it does is it wakes the servant up as much as anything because you notice in verse 15 that the woman is already there before he had finished praying. And I, I think the importance of that, verse 15, is it's not his prayer that gets God to move in this way. Like he's putting quarters into the machine and God answers according to how much change was put in. God has already placed Rebecca there. His prayer is preparing the servant to notice her and to see her. Sure, he's seen many women along the journey to this point in time, probably at other wells. But he's now in the area where he knows he needs to stop, and he says, verse 15, or it says, verse 15, before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. So in every way conceivable, she is eligible. But is she the one? Verse 17, the servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. Now anyone that's not completely callous is going to give a drink to a man who's been journeying for this length of time, she may not know how long he's journeying, but obviously needs a drink of water. Of course she's going to give him a drink of water. But will she go the next step? Will she go beyond what is expected and offer to water the camels? A sizable job, taking considerable effort. Verse 19, after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all of his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. That also, I think, is an important point. He doesn't say, God answered my prayer just like I laid it out. This has got to be the one. He's still discerning. He's still seeking God's direction. Still, what, I think what is happening here in verse 21, though he doesn't jump to conclusions, his focus is now on this woman. God has led him to focus on her. Who is she? Could she be the one? He watches and he waits as she works. Verse 22. By the way, I probably should interject there. This isn't our scene, right? I mean, any man that's sitting there watching a woman water ten camels and doesn't lift a finger to help, uh, he should be probably kicked into the well. But this is a different day. This is a different situation. This is a different protocol and custom in that time. It would not have been unusual for her to water the camels. But he apparently just watches without saying a word as she waters them. We don't know that for sure, but it seems that that is the case. But he has a different agenda than she could ever know. And so in verse 20, as he sees her water the camels, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. A becca would be about six grams, and nose rings were very common in that day. Remember, Abraham's instructions were to find a woman from his father's household. We know, we know who Rebecca is. But the servant does not. And so 
he asked the next question with bated breath. Verse 23, then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Mil- that son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Well, the servant is obviously ecstatic here. This very woman is from the very family that he seeks on this four-week journey. Verse 26, the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. There are indications from the Hebrew words here that the servant prayed out loud. And Rebecca obviously notes his prayer because she will communicate the worship of Abraham, the worship of this servant to Laban, to her father Bethuel. And she responds very quickly. There's a key theme here throughout this text and really throughout Rebecca's life. She was a worker. She was somebody who got after things quickly. And so verse 28 we read, characteristically of Rebecca, the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things, as we might expect she would. What a strange stranger at the well she met that day. Scene three now. We are still within Mesopotamia, but the scene shifts here to Laban's house, and Rebekah is discovered at the well. She is secured for Isaac here at verse 29 and following, and this will take up the bulk of the chapter. Let's put ourselves in the servant's position here. The the major issue now is for Abraham's servant to convince Laban to accept Abraham's marriage proposal by demonstrating that it is of God. That's the key. Verse 29. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban and hurried out. Who hurried out? He hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. We stop for just a moment, beginning with verse 34. The servant now recounts information that we already have. But we need to remember that he and Laban and Rebekah and the extended family are figuring all of this out as the servant is speaking. What we are watching then is the sovereign God work by means of human ingenuity and wisdom. Watch that, note that. The servant thus begins to explain his mission and to sell the proposal of Laban, who is apparently acting here as the head of his household and thus the one that would have authority over Rebekah, the one that would have the ability and the right to turn over or or to agree to this marriage proposal. So at verse 34, we watch this unfold. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, men servants and maid servants and camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. 
And my master made me swear an oath, he said. You must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, what if the woman will not come back with me? He replied, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and make your journey a success so that you can get a wife for my son from my own clan and from my father's family. Then, when you go to my clan, you will be released from my oath. Even if they refuse to give her to you, you will be released from my oath. When I came to the spring today, I said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing before this spring. If a maiden comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, drink, and I'll draw water for your camels as well, your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and, said, and I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar to her shoulder and said, from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, Nahor whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshiped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn." I imagine Laban and his father Bethuel sit for a moment in stunned silence. What can they say? I don't know how to draw a parallel with our day, but it might be something like someone showing up at your front door this afternoon and saying, Hi, I'm from California, and uh, I just met your child down the street, and from the description that your child gave me, you're exactly the person I'm looking to go into business with. I, I, don't, I don't know how we would parallel this. We don't have such marriage arrangements, but this is, this is unbelievable. This is strange. These men stand there listening to all of this and can hardly believe what they're hearing. Bethuel is apparently too infirm or too old to exercise leadership of the household, which falls to Laban here, is very clear. And he handles the negotiations. But they both agree, verse 50, both Bethuel and Laban, who is the leader of the clan or the household here. Verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. Now we learn later who Laban is, what kind of a man he is. This was not easy for him to just make such an easy decision to let Rebekah go. We find that out later with Rachel and how he deals with her. Maybe he feels he learned a thing or two with this Re Rebecca situation, but at any rate, he's not an easy man to convince, but he's convinced. He doesn't know what to say. And how is he swayed? He is not swayed by Abraham's wealth, of which there is ample evidence. 
He's not swayed even by Abraham's lineage, which is obviously compatible with his, and in that day that was very important as they arranged marriages. Laban is swayed by the obvious leading of God. He cannot argue with providence. You can imagine at this point that the servant is absolutely ecstatic. His mission was like looking for a needle in a haystack. He threw his hand in once, and it pricked his hand on the first pass through. He, he probably is beyond him to even imagine how this happened. But he knows why it's happened, and he evidences that in verse 52 as he prays, thanking God for his providential intervention. Verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then he stands, verse 53, and gets to the business of giving the dowry. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, Send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, Let the girl remain with us ten days or so. That's an idiom, a figure of speech. This means let, let's hang around for a while. Then you may go. But, verse 56, he said to them, Do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so I may go to my master. Then they said, Let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebekah and asked her, Will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to, ten, to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. Now verse 51, uh, they give their consent. I think what's happening there is Laban and Bethuel give their consent to release Rebekah. Now, as we follow through here below, Rebekah is asked if she will consent, verse 58. And that is not unusual for that day, for that culture. There are documents that have been uncovered, arrangements that are made, where the uh, woman is asked if she will be willing to enter into this arrangement. So I don't think there's any conflict there, but we notice that uh, a blessing is given to her, a blessing that very much parallels God's blessing of Abraham. And so Rebekah, with that blessing from her family, all is arranged, the dowry is given, and now she makes the journey back to Canaan. Scene four. Scene one in Canaan, the servant leaves. Scene two in Mesopotamia at the spring or the well, the underground spring, is a well. And then scene three, at the house of Laban, now seen four in Canaan. Rebekah is escorted to Isaac, her new husband, beginning at verse 62. Now Isaac had come from Ber Lahoi Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Remember that down in the south end of Palestine. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw the camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Again, the long, difficult journey across the Fertile Crescent is ignored, and the scene shifts quickly to Canaan, where we find Isaac in the Negev of southern Palestine in the history 
of private devotion here, I think this has got to go down as one of the all-time greatest experiences any man has ever had. A marriageable man goes out to meditate and to pray and finds coming to meet him a beautiful woman who has agreed to become his wife. For her part, Rebecca sees a man, and in a cultural act of humility and deference, she dismounts from her camel when she finds out that this man is Isaac. Again, with customary modesty, she veils her face. And the, and the servant then greets Isaac and, retell, and retells his story to his son, master's son. Verse 66, Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. So with just one simple verse then, Isaac and Rebekah are brought together in marriage. Verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So in the tent of Sarah, in the tent where he was apparently conceived himself, Isaac sleeps with Rebekah and the promise of an offspring for Abraham is infused with fresh hope. By faith, Abraham has secured a wife for his son in the land. And that is the critical issue here in this text. God has provided a wife for Isaac. What a scene. And we could spend time there thinking about that scene. As Isaac is there meditating and thinking and praying, we would assume, and considering God's plan for his life. He sees Rebekah. She sees him. And very briefly and simply, they are married and joined together as husband and wife. But of course, we cannot see that scene with our eyes. We cannot completely understand it. There are certainly visions there of God bringing Eve to Adam. There are visions there of even a contemporary wedding service as the bride is brought to the groom. But I do think we can ask this, what has really happened here? In a broad sense, I think the critical issue here is that Abraham's faith dictates his actions. His faith dictates his actions. He did what he did because he believed God's Word. More specifically, motivated by his confidence in God's Word, Abraham made a discriminating decision about the wife he would choose for his son. He had plenty of clout to negotiate a marriage with one of the tribal leaders living in Canaan. We have noted that through this series. He could have done so quite easily. As a matter of fact, there would have been some political advantage to doing so. But Abraham discriminated against the Canaanites in the area of marriage. My son will not marry a woman from among these people. Why? Because God has promised me something. He's promised me the land. My son must stay here, and he will not marry a woman who has been cursed to disinherit this land. He was willing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar if God asked him to do so. And he was willing to risk not finding a wife for his son through whom the promise of an offspring had to pass if it was not the right wife. Now we need to stop here. We use the word discrimination not a friendly word in our culture. We need to understand something about Abraham, which we do as we've gone through the text. Abraham got along very well with his Canaanite neighbors. He proved gracious to them. He proved accommodating to them. He entered agreements with some of them. He prayed for them. He sought their well-being. 
On one occasion, he even defended their interests militarily. But when it came to the marriage of his son, he discriminated against them. We live in a very different world, obviously. Not a world of arranged marriages, and we do not have a promise that as God's people, we will inherit a particular land. But I think there's a principle which certainly survives here and is very applicable to us seated in this room today. For us, we are in what is generally, culturally, a dating situation for all of its quirks and failures. It's what we have in this culture, most. And we are Christians, not Israel as such, not under exactly the same economy, but we are believers in Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we're in a very different situation. But I think as believers in this world, it is quite clear that we are to get along with the lost world. We are to be good neighbors. We're to be people who work hard and diligently and faithfully. We're to be people who if necessary, I think, is right to go to war for our country. We're to make our schools, we're to make our communities, we're to make our families, our larger extended families, better by our presence. But when it comes to marriage, we must be discriminating. Our faith in God's truth must dictate that we limit our options. We limit our options to people who know the Lord as Savior and provide credible evidence of their faith by the way that they live. I add that attachment to the end because I think in our setting it's very important. Maybe even in our setting here in this state, in this particular state, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who are not Christians in the true biblical sense of the word. They might have a Christian heritage, some basic theology that they've adopted, but we must talk about discriminating marriage to people who know Christ as Savior and give evidence of that fact. And that discrimination really draws the circle in, doesn't it? It constricts, it narrows, it, it cuts down the playing field, so to speak. As we were in India at the beginning of this year, I, I think of that from Shambhu Day's experience there. Put yourself in their situation. He said, marriage is so hard here. Now, they're in a situation of arranging marriages, but he said there are so few Christians, and they're so far between. Pray for our families, that they would know how to marry their children. It's a difficult situation. Well, there are people all around them they could marry, but the, the circle is very narrow, very constricted. They must be discriminating. In our situation, it's not so much a discussion to parents, it's more a discussion to young people. Those of you who are not yet married, uh, our youth here, our teens, our singles, all of you together need to understand and to think about this. There is more uh, responsibility that falls on your shoulders in our culture in taking a mate. And you need to think very carefully about being discriminating. Have you decided that your faith in God will be exercised so that you seek a mate only from among God's people? If you have a choice between marriage to an unbeliever or maybe a spiritually questionable person or lifelong singleness, which will you choose? I would call you to make the decision now. 
so that you don't have to make it in the midst of great emotional excitement. Make the decision now. I'm thankful in my youth for a pastor that pressed me to that decision to say, my circle is going to be narrow and I'll trust God for the details. I'm so thankful for that decision. And I would call you young people, teens, singles, to make that same decision. Why? I'll give you just one passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Think with me for just a few more moments. I'll give just one passage among many as to why I believe that is biblical and why I feel like I've got any right to stand here and say this to you this morning. It may not be quite so much the case in our church. I pray God it's not, but I know in many churches people would think of this as absolute meddling to say to somebody that you can decide for them what size circle they're going to have of potential marriage partners. But there's reasons for it, and I think there's divine reasons for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. What fellowship does light have with darkness? I tell you, there is no closer relationship imaginable, no closer relationship possible on this earth than between a husband and a wife. If you have light in you, the Spirit of God dwells in you, you will find there is a wall between you and a mate who does not know the Lord. Don't enter such a relationship. What fellowship does light have with darkness? None. Now, if you're in that situation, stay married and live for God, 1 Peter 3, and do what is right and be the best husband or wife that you can possibly be. But if you have a choice, be discriminating. Be discriminating. Narrow your circle. Now, I'm going to tie that in with this next point as we draw to a close. But I want to step back from that a little bit further. I think that's one thing that we certainly see here in this passage is a discriminating view of marriage, a constricted circle. But I think we see in a broader sense the sovereignty of God and human obedience. There is not a lot of text given to the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. There is an awful lot of text given to the working of God in the leading of this servant on this particular issue. And it's not just in the realm of marriage, though that is certainly on our mind as we look at this passage, but it is in many other areas as well. Abraham's faith was exercised and God's grace was released. But notice how Abraham trusted God. He had full confidence that God would lead him, but he went to work to bring about God's plan. 
In other words, genuine faith in God's guidance does all that it can to bring about what God wills. Abraham could have piously said, hey, no big deal. Isaac can go live in Mesopotamia if he wants. God made his promise. God's going to bring him back. We could look at that and say, what a man of great faith. He's willing to let his son go all the way back to Mesopotamia and with all of my wealth and land there, and he knows God will bring him back. That is not how Abraham exercised his faith at all. And there are times when Christians exercise their faith in that way. They just let go, well, God will work everything out. I don't really need to do anything. Abraham doesn't think like that. Abraham employs human means to bring about God's promise. He never loses sight of the fact that it's not he that's controlling the world. But he works and he sweats and he gives effort through his servant to bring about what God wills as he sees it. Now that's our side. We work to bring about the will of God. From God's side, we learn again that he is in the business of providing for his people. Hear that, Christian. He is in the business of providing for his people. Yes, in this context, he's in the business of providing a mate for his people who choose his way. And you know what else? He's also in the business of providing his grace for those that he chooses not to have a mate. He's always providing. In any area in life, God will provide the grace that is necessary. He promises to us to work all things together for good to our growth and maturity in the faith. In that, I can rest. I don't rest in my labors. I don't rest in my efforts to, pull up, to bring off what God wants me to bring off and to accomplish. But I do so with a sense of peace in my heart. That God knows he's in the business of providing so I put it this way. I know it's kind of crass, but I say it this way. Work your tail off, but don't fret. Do what God's called you to do. Follow through in the grace that he's given you, never in worry. There's a sovereign God who runs the universe, who's in the business of guiding his people, and who guides down the paths he knows are necessary for your sanctification. Do you need a mate? He'll provide. Do you need peace without a mate? He'll provide it. Do you need wisdom for a trying problem? He'll provide that wisdom. Do you need victory over a sinful habit? What we learn about our God in the life of Abraham is that he provides. He provides at the right moment, in the right way, at the right time, so that we learn that he loves us and we learn that he is trustworthy. I don't say these things simply. I know what some of you endure. I know what you're going through. But I can say with all of my heart, if I know anything in this world, you can trust him. He'll provide. He'll provide what you need when you need it. What we need to do is learn to lean. Learn to rest. A working, energetic effort that sweats and gives its all to accomplish what God wants to be accomplished, knowing in our heart all along that it's His providential leading, it's His work of grace that's going to make happen what should happen in my life. Put a stake into that and rest on it and live on it. Work your tail off 
but trust him every step of the way. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we bow before you with humility, with a sense of awe in our heart as we see again a reminder of how great you are. And Lord, I labor in intercessory prayer right now for your people, for those that have needs and trials and hurts that are above their head, who feel like they are trying to keep their nose above water and they are paddling for all that they're worth because of something that you've brought into their life and into their experience. I ask, dear God, for a big faith. I plead, dear Lord, that you will provide for them and show them your provision. And as they look back to these trials, that they will find in them an opportunity to prove your love and your grace. Grant us discernment. Grant us wisdom as we face these hours of trial. And grant us, Lord, your grace. And grant us as a church a big faith that knows that you will provide. We do not ask, God, that you lift away all the trials and blow away all the fog. We ask that you hold our hand and take us through. And Lord, to realize by maturity in our life that the trials and the difficulties and the confusion and the questions and the wondering, all of them can be brought together to prove your greatness. May these people discover that in their life. May I discover it in mine. We ask you not for trials. We ask you not to be delivered from trials. We don't know what to pray there. We all hate the pain and we hate the suffering. We hate the trials, but we also know that through them you prove yourself faithful. And we long for that. So we leave in your care and in your hands the direction and the circumstances But I pray, God, that we would pour out our hearts and our lives and our energies to follow what you have called us to do and to learn that you provide. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your care. We thank you for your mercies. For anyone whose faith is shaky right now, I ask, God, that you will strengthen that faith that they would grab a hold of your hand and realize that you are in fact holding theirs and that they will depend and rest in your way and in your purposes. This is my prayer for your people, for anyone that does not know the joy of a relationship with you through the Spirit, through his baptism and through the indwelling Christ through salvation. I pray, dear Father, you would bring such a one to saving faith today, should it be your grace for them. Please draw, convict, and teach. Continue to do your work in our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together if you'll take a hymnal. I'd like to sing 682. We sang earlier. I think it's a good response to what Abraham faced